Hello, boys and girls. It's your old pal, Stinky Whistleteats. This is a podcast about a whale. No, this is a podcast about fictional movie and TV bands. I'll teach your grandmother to suck eggs. So, yeah, this is Two Broke Nerds. I'm Alec. I'm a film geek. And I'm Brian, and I'm a music geek. Like Stinky Whistleteats said, we're, we're talking about fictional bands. Uh, yeah, we're kind of combining both of our expertise in a, in a pretty interesting way this week. And he's not on either of our lists, but Stinky Whistleteats was from Run and Stimpy, most famously singing Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy. So we figured we, he needed a cameo. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start off with Josie and the Pussycats, just because we talked about them a few weeks ago when we talked about the late Adam Schlesinger. So we just figured we knocked them out of the, the way first. They're a great band. I wish they actually had more material because the songs in that film are great. Yeah, well, I mean, that movie, did, did that movie, I mean, because that's kind of like cult classic movie. Did that movie bomb in theaters? It did bomb in theaters, but I did do some research and the soundtrack was actually a minor hit. It sold 500,000 copies, which actually made it gold. Right. I mean, I was just going back and listening to some of it. And it's, I haven't seen that movie probably in 20 years. And I was listening to the songs. I'm like, yep, I remember all these. These are great. These songs are great. Which, Which is, is to great. be expected from Adam Schlesinger, as we covered a, a few months ago when he died. And there was also uh, a, a really great writing team beyond him. Uh, there was Babyface. And who's the lead singer of Counting Crows? Adam Duritz. Yeah, he did a song as well. Interesting. And then uh, the lead singer as well was from Letters to Cleo also was part of the writing process. So there was just a really good creative team on the writing team. Yeah. I didn't like try to verify this or anything, but yeah, you're the, uh, the expert on this film. Did, did the actresses actually learn to, to play these songs and sing them? I mean, uh, Rachel Lee Cook didn't do her own singing, but they did learn at least to be proficient enough to mime along with the tracks. Gotcha, sure. And I think they did do backing vocals, but none, none of the lead vocals. Right. As we're going to see as we go down this list, a lot of actors, uh, a testament to their dedication, will do a crash course and, and learn uh, how to be competent enough in, uh, musicians to, to put these bands and songs across. We're going to see that more and more as the list goes on. And before moving on to the next one, there was another fictional band in Joe's and the Pussycats, Du Jour, which was like a boy band. And they had Backdoor Lover, which is exactly what you think it's about. God, I remember that. I should rewatch this movie. I remember a lot of it just for someone who hasn't seen it in a long time. But I remember that, too. Yeah. Um, and that's how the movie opens. It's a PG-13 movie targeted at teenage girls. And it opens with a boy band singing about anal sex. Yeah, this might be a random tangent, but this was on neither of our lists, and I just thought of it now, and now I'm kind of regretting not putting it on my list. Do you remember Together? Yes, and I actually considered them because of thinking about Du Jour. Yeah, I, I just thought of it now when you mentioned that. God, I love that movie. I had a friend tape it off MTV for me when I was a kid. I didn't have cable. I remember watching it going like, what the hell is this? And by the end of it, I was just like, this is amazing. This movie is great. It was com compounded, made all the more great by the fact that I went back to school and like everyone who was into boy bands was super into this band. 
And I'm yeah. sitting there like, you realize this is like making fun of all of that, right? right. But like yeah. it went over so many people's heads at the time. It was just hilarious. Yeah, and one of the stars in it was uh, Chris Farley's little brother. Yep, yep. That was, uh, it's, like, I, I remember, like, watching the first part, and I was a kid, I didn't really get how these things work, and watching it and going, like, is this a joke? Is this just, like, a giant spit take? And then as soon as I saw Chris Farley's little brother, I'm like, number one, that guy looks like Chris Farley, and of course it, it was his brother. And then I'm like, all right, this is, this is definitely a, a, just a spit take on this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> And then one more before we move on, because we have our main list, but then we have some honorable mentions that we're kind of sliding in, uh, is The Wonders, which, again, we talked about with when we talked about Adam Schlesinger, but that thing you do, great song, and yeah, just wanted to yeah. toss that in. And uh, should probably be on this list, but we spent so much time talking about that in the previous podcast, so, so go back to our second ever podcast uh, if you want to hear us dabble about The Wonders some more. And his name is going to come up again. Mike Viola was one of the other people involved with The Wonders, and he actually shows up quite a bit as being the songwriter for fictional bands. Yeah. So what's yeah. your first one? All right. So I'm just going down the list you made here, and I'd probably rank them higher than they are on this list. And also, uh, this name is not pronounceable. They don't pronounce it correctly ever in the movie. Uh, the <laughs> movie is Frank, and the band is the Saron Foods. There, I tried to pronounce it. It's hilarious. No one in the band who would know ever pronounces the name, which is great. Just part of the whole mystique. But Frank was actually based off of a real character that a comedian made up, Frank Sidebottom, who wore a, a, a giant head like Frank does in the movie. But I think that it was uh, Chris Seavey, English musician and comedian. And his uh, comic persona was Frank Sidebottom in the 80s and 90s and stuff. So they made this movie loosely based on this character. But the, the movie itself is kind of more of a takeoff on like super pretentious indie rock bands, which <laughs> is just incredible. It tickles me. My favorite scene is uh, so they go and they, they're like holed up in this farm for like a year while they're making an album and just going crazy because they're just all crazy people. And so Frank has them doing all these like exercises. <laughs> and so they're all running around, like running back and forth in a field. And someone goes, someone's thinking in the key of C. And uh, one of the characters, uh, Domhnall Gleeson's character goes, it was me. Then Maggie Gyllenhaal's character just comes out from the side of the screen and tackles him to the ground. It just it cracks me up every time. That movie is so good, and like it, I don't want to give it away, but it's just like one of the guys in the band is like low key the villain. It's 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 nuts. There's a there's a major twist in it. Um, yeah, but it, but it's also like just really heartfelt. Like this, here's this guy who's like this is how he interacts with the world with this mask, and, and his music is actually really at times really beautiful and really really thought provoked. But it, it, as the movie progresses, you realize like the, it, like. He, there's really something wrong with him. There's something wrong with all these people. <laughs> but, like, but yeah, but yeah, he's he's got his his, his own uh, struggles with with mental health. But like, music is the one thing he can do to to, to communicate with the world. And I think that uh, something a lot of artists, a lot of musicians can relate to. I didn't get a chance to watch the film, but I did listen to the music and. There's the, the, there's what we made a playlist that we're going to uh, accompany with uh, with the podcast, and you're like, yep, you chose the right song, and you said it's like the culmination song, and it's I love you all, and it kind of has this 
Beatles psychedelic vibe, like a very John Lennon psychedelic sort of vibe. And it's yeah. really good. Like at first I was like, I don't know if I like this song. And then I like listened to it like five times. I'm like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's at the very end of the movie. And it's the, like one of the only scenes where Michael Fassbender as Frank is unmasked. Um, I'm, I'm just like giving away the movie now, I guess. But like he, uh, he, he sings it and like all of, all of the songs so far, like in the film, it's like, it's improvised, but they like all improvised this song in this uh, club. It, it's just, it's a, it's a great ending in the movie. And also as, as we mentioned, it's, it's really the only time you hear this band in full, like you've heard little snippets of them writing and stuff in the studio and just like parts of their live shows before it devolves into someone screaming at each, into them all screaming at each other and throwing things at each other, because that's basically what every performance this band does evolves, devolves into. <laughs> so you finally hear him at the very end, and it's great. A gentleman named Stephen Rennix wrote the, the music behind this, the music director. And I, I wanted to point that out because I, I just wanted to. I, I, I like, you know, it, it's cool with these fictional bands because you have, like, two sides. You have, like, the performance of it, the performance aspect, and then you have the people behind the scenes, like 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 Schlesinger, like, uh, like Stephen Rennix, who kind of make these bands um, uh, come to life. And in that way, it's, it's, it is kind of like the boy band model, or it's kind of like the old 50s and 60s model, where you have the, the creative team, and then you have the people that present it, performers. Right. I mean, n neither of us really brought this up, but technically, the Monkees was a fictional band that became a real band, and you had, like, <laughs> Neil Diamond writing for them. Right. Yeah. That, that's also a little egregious that neither of us has the Monkees on here, but it, it's our favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, and the monkeys kind of are funny in the sense that they really did. They were created for a TV show, and then they they became real essentially. Yeah, yeah. We're also going to see that in a few of the bands on this list too, though. So, so let's do my next one, Crucial Taunt from Wayne's World. There was a little <laughs> bit of a struggle between the two of us because we both love Wayne's World. Yeah, I could uh, like uh, one of these days we'll make a podcast where we just like recite. An entire scene from Wayne's World because I'm pretty sure both of us can do it off the top of our heads. Just probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Crucial Taunt is the the lead singer Cassandra is the object of Wayne's affections, and they perform throughout the movie. But the the thing they're most known for is their cover of Ballroom Blitz, which is my first introduction to the song. So maybe that's what kind of like makes me biased towards it. But I legitimately think it's the best version of that song. Yeah, it's it's a well. I mean, that's the first that's the first version of the song I ever heard. So many of the songs that Crucial Taunt plays, that was my first impression of that song and that artist. The other big one for me was uh, Jimi Hendrix and, and Fire, which is the first song that they perform when you see them on screen. Yeah, uh, and then the other song they perform is "Why You Want to Break My Heart," which is a ballad, and it's not quite as memorable, but. Tia Carrera, she is a very good singer. She's actually won a Grammy for, I believe it was Hawaiian music. Yeah. So she is an actual talented singer and musician in her own right. And she absolutely sells Crucial Taunt. For sure. She's definitely not playing that bass, though. I can say that. Well, <laughs> fair. <laughs> she, she's, she's, got, she's got pipes, but she's, she's just kind of like... Yeah, ne next time you watch the movie, just watch what she's doing with the bass. Yeah, she's not playing that, but it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's absolutely fine. Really not much more to say about it, except that Tia Carrera rocks. 
So moving on, this next band is Death Clock from Metalocalypse, which was a cartoon. I want to say, oh, I am so prepared for this. I'm so sorry, guys. Uh, <laughs> I think that was Adult Swim. Yeah, that, that sounds yeah. right. That sounds right. Yeah. It was created by Brendan Small, who uh, his previous show is actually something I enjoy quite a bit more, uh, Home Movies. And, it, and it's actually kind of more up your, your alley, Alec, because it's about Brendan's childhood and making like, you know, home movies because mm-hmm. he loves film and everything. Yeah. And that, that, that show also has H. John Benjamin in like one of his funniest roles ever. So, but Metalocalypse is equally funny. It's just a bunch of metal stereotypes. I mean, they've gotten big name metal stars to both play on tracks and to guest star in shows. Death Clock actually toured. Brendan Small creates all the music. He created all the music in home movies and he creates all the music for Metalocalypse. Death Clock released a number of albums and toured. And I got to interview Brendan Small when Death Clock came to Albany, which was pretty surreal for me. Like I said, I'm more a fan of home movies. And uh, there were certain points in the interview where he just sounded like Brendan from that show so, so much. Um, and of course, because he voices Brendan and it's a it's self-insert character. But it was just like, I'm talking to Brendan Small. It's amazing. <laughs> but like, he's a he's an incredible musician super talented death clock as you know a metal musician site death clock uh, as they like they're, they're not fake i mean they're fake but they're they're you know they they toured for real he he brendan would hire like real upper tier metal musicians to, to tour with him with this band so yeah check them out they're great not just for a fake band but for any kind of metal band yeah, and I, I can't really, I'm not really into metal. I, I can't really, it's just too loud for me. I mean, not, not to be that guy, but, you know, but it's just too damn loud for me, to, to quote Huey Lewis in Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah. Um, but You might like some of Death Clock. Just, I mean, it's loud, but it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's funny. Yeah. It, it's all funny stuff. Oh, look, uh, here I am. They have done four albums. Most recent was released in 2013. Nice. Uh, the yeah. problem could have been that I was kind of multitasking while at work trying to listen to, to it, and that was, probably was a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'll have to give it another try when I'm not, like, half paying attention and trying to concentrate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you got it's, it's like it's metal, so you do have to decipher those vocals, but they're pretty fucking funny once you decipher them. All right. So the next one I have is Sex Babom from Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which is a film I've been fairly obsessed with now for a decade. It's been a decade since that movie came out, which makes me feel incredibly old. But it is. The lead character of it, Scott, is the bass player for the band Sex Babom, and the songs were written and produced by Beck. And all of the actors in the film, uh, like we were speaking about before, they did learn how to play. And the uh, actor that plays the the lead singer, he does the singing. All the songs are like less than two minutes long each, but they're just these really fun garage bandy indie rock songs and they're just a blast yeah i I have a confession to make i i do not like that movie the about the only thing that i like about it and still like about it is sex the ball that band was great 
and it, it's it's almost everything I want in a band. Just you know, loud and punky and sloppy and grudgy, and can't go wrong with Beck writing songs. So there you go. The other thing, and I kind of found this interesting, the same year, because Universal released Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, they also released Get Him to the Greek. And that also had a fictional band that was fronted by Russell Brand called Infant Sorrow. And I just thought it was kind of fascinating that Universal like doubled down on the fictional bands and movies thing in the same year. And, <laughs> and uh, again, the songs are pretty good in that. And Russell Brand is actually kind of believable as a rock star and Jarvis Cocker of Pulp did some of the songs for that and then also a weird little side note Jarvis Cocker also did a song for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire because there was a band that performed at their like prom called the Weird Sisters so there you go just randomness <laughs> I've seen that Harry Potter, and I don't remember that at all, but uh, I'd be hard-pressed to remember anything from that particular Harry Potter movie. Yeah, I, I, we've talked yeah. about this. this was the, that was the one where you kind of jumped off. You're like, yeah, I'm done. This isn't for me. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, well, the one that really made me mad was the third one, because at yeah. one point they go back in time, and it was like, the movie was almost over, and now I'm going to sit through, oh, God. <laughs> and I actually liked Order of the Phoenix when I saw yeah. it. I was like, all right, this is shorter than the other ones. It seems like they've gotten down to the meat of what this thing is. I'm not, like, confused every five minutes. This, I, I enjoy this. And then I, I, and then I really did drop off because I had no reason to see him anymore. All the previous ones were either, like, I got to review this for a paper or some girl wants me to go see it with her. I'm like, okay. And then after that, like, none of that was happening anymore. So I'm like, all right, good. <laughs> good. Yeah, so, go. yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they're the Weird Sisters. Uh, Do the Hippogriff was the name of the song. And it's basically a, a 90s Brit pop rocker that was released in the 2000s, but, you know, whatever. It's pretty good. And then... That, that, that makes sense. I mean, those books are all in the 90s anyway, so... Yeah. Here you go. That was just my side tangent uh, from Sex Bomb. So, yeah. proceed with the next one. <laughs> Up next, we have the return of uh, Christopher Guest and his mockumentaries with A Mighty Wind. The band I picked from this is not the one that most people would expect. It's Mitch and Mickey, which is the duo between Eugene Levy and uh, Catherine O'Hara. Yes. Right? Yeah. A lot of people might expect the, the folksman to be the, the choice because that is like really the Spinal Tap analog in that movie. It's the same guys. Basically doing the same shtick except for folk. The reason I picked Mitch and Mickey is because... Their songs actually make me cry, which is incredible. Like, both of their big songs, the, the Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, which is like a huge plot point and a huge hook at the end. And then the other song, which Eugene Levy actually wrote. And again, because I am so prepared for this, I don't remember the title, but it's like my favorite song on that soundtrack. And again, makes me cry almost every time I listen to it. I'm going to try to find it now. But uh, Alec, you have things to say about this. Of course you do. Yeah, I'll say things about it. Yeah, I, I agree with that, absolutely. Mitch and Mickey are the heart of that movie. Eugene Levy is the heart of that movie. And yeah, when they perform The Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, it gets me every time. Every single time, it gets me. And that song was actually nominated for an Academy Award, so they actually performed it at the Oscars that year, which is amazing. It should have won, because it's it's freaking awesome, but... Probably some stupid ballad from some dumb movie won over it. 
Probably. I, I think, think that might be I the think, year Lennox won for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I think that was the year that uh, Lord of the Rings won everything, including their weird New Agey whatever song that was yeah. like, no. There was there were a lot of good songs. I remember that year because wasn't that the Triplets of Bellevue too, or am I thinking was, later yeah. year? Every song except for the shitty one from Lord of the Rings that won was better. <laughs> I was looking at credits here, almost tearing up at this. Kiss at the End of the Rainbow was written by Michael McKeon and Annette O'Toole. Oh wow! Yeah, it's that's so sweet. That's incredible. And then I was right. The other song is When You're Next to Me, and that's a sole Eugene Levy credit. It's incredible. All the credits in here are the actors wrote these and performed these. You know, uh, Michael McKeon, Harry Shearer, and and Christopher Guest, uh, Eugene Levy. Yeah. A Mighty Wind might be, in my mind, the pinnacle of the Christopher Guest mockumentaries, just because of how much heart it has. The other ones are funny, but they don't quite have the heart that this movie has. Yeah, which we which we spoke about when we talked about Fred Willard, and uh, yes. yeah, I we are we're in absolute agreement about that. I, I just love that film. It has so much affection for the subject matter, even if these people are a little weird and eccentric. There's this real sense of love for those characters that isn't always yeah. present in other Christopher Guest movies. Right. It's not nasty the way that Waiting for Guffman can get nasty and Dustin Show can get nasty. This movie is rarely, if ever, nasty toward its subject matter. And for me, the next one is The Ruddles, which, you know, a lot of people go on about this is Spinal Tap being sort of the first mockumentary, rock, rock mockumentary. <laughs> but no, The Ruddles beat them to it by like almost a decade. This is and very true. And it was the, the origins of it. And it's, it is a mockumentary about a Beatles analog. Like it, it, they exactly follow the Beatles career to the letter. So the more you know about the Beatles, the funnier the movie is. But the origins of it are kind of weird. It started out as a sketch that Eric Idle did for a show in England called, I think, the Rutland, uh, Rutland Hour Weekend or something, something like that. And that sketch, he hosted Saturday Night Live, and so he used one of those sketches. It was really popular, and Lord Michaels liked it enough that he produced a 70-minute TV movie. So it's sort of the closest you're going to get to a Saturday Night Live Monty Python movie, because you have Eric Idle and a bunch of Saturday Night Live cast members from that time period. So you have John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner, and Bill Murray, all making small cameos. And then also you have all of these real musicians appearing in it as well, like Mick Jagger and Paul Simon, and even George Harrison playing like an executive for their version of Apple Studios. Yep, yep. And uh, George Harrison has uh, some some interesting ties to Monty Python. He helped finance uh, the, the movies, uh, especially uh, The Life of Brian is the one I always hear about that he yes. helped finance. The movie yeah. was not going to get made. And he was just like, no, I'll, I'll finance it. Because there is a quote from him saying that he believes like whatever magic existed in the Beatles was transferred over into Monty Python because the year the Beatles ended was the year that Monty Python began. Huh. Huh. I like that. With the Ruddles, and I, I can't, I don't remember how to pronounce his name. I think it's Neil Enos. Uh, he recently passed away. 
he did do a lot of stuff in Monty Python. He was kind of like an honorary member of Monty Python. He wrote a lot of the songs. He wrote the songs for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And he wrote all the songs for the Ruddles. And the thing about the songs is they're less parody and more homage because they kind of just slightly tweak the lyrics to actual songs. And sometimes they're funny, but sometimes they're just like ever so slightly off the real things. And it's, they're great. They're, they're just yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. The Ruddles are fantastic. Um, it's again, it's been years since I've seen that. I need to rewatch it. It's great. Uh, I think my favorite is ouch instead of help. Yes. Ouch. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. You got a runner up listed down here. Uh, oh yeah. Because it's kind of similar. Uh, Dewey Cox from walk yeah. hard, the Dewey Cox story, which was this John C. Riley starring film that was making fun of all the, all these biopics of musicians that were coming out at the time, because uh, this was 2007, most right. directly parodying the uh, Walk the Line film that came out starring Joaquin Phoenix as Johnny Cash. But it's really great because it, it just chronicles, sort of like the Ruddles, this fake musician's career, and the songs... Again, similar to the Rubbles, they're not always like hilariously funny parodies. They're just like really spot on genre homages. And they cover pretty much every genre from like the 50s all the way up to like the 80s, 90s. And the songs are really funny and they're really good. And they, uh, some of them were written, like I said, Mike Viola would come back and that's he did some of the songwriting for that. And they're just really good. Yeah, that's it's uh, an incredible parody of just rock and roll music history. Uh, in a movie that I think again uh, didn't quite hit in theaters, but kind of found its audience on on video. It, did, it definitely found me on video. Yeah, and again, connecting it to the Ruddles, uh, there is one scene that feels very similar to Ruddles, where it's Dewey Cox meets the Beatles, and it's Jack Black, Jason Schwartzman, Justin Long and Paul Rudd. And they're not even, like, remotely trying to do Beatles impressions. Right, it's, like, the weird, it's one of the weirdest scenes in that movie. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, there's this one part where, where Paul Rudd, he's doing John Lennon, and he just says, imagine. And the way he moves his mouth when he says, imagine, is just kills me every freaking time. Yep. Oh, Paul Rudd is a national treasure. Another thing that, again, I'm so prepared for this, but I just thought of something that uh, should have been on my list again, as we were talking about this one and fits in with this one in the fifth season of The Simpsons. The Simpsons opened the fifth season with an episode about Homer's barbershop quartet in the 80s called the B Sharps. And they actually got the barbershop quartet that performs at like Disneyland and Disney World go and do the the singing for, for this barbershop quartet. But the Barbershop Quartet's career, it, it's basically the history of the Beatles squeezed into a 22-minute Simpsons episode. And the reason they did that is because everyone at the Simpsons is a huge fan of the Beatles, and they just wanted to do a Beatles episode. So they did that. George Harrison guest stars. The very end is the B-Sharps reuniting on the rooftop, and like George Harrison drives by, and he looks out the window, and he's like, yeah, it's been done. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, so good. My favorite line in that, in that episode, uh, Homer is writing their hit called Baby on Board. 
And he like, Marge comes in with the sticker, like, homie, look at this. Now maybe people won't intentionally ram our car when we're driving around. And he's like, hmm. And he sits at the piano and he's like, baby on board, something, something, Burt Ward. Wow, this thing writes itself. (laughs) (laughs) I just love it. Uh, And then one more fictional band vibing off of the Beatles, uh, the Beats from from Doug, which they made them, they stylized them to look sort of like the Beatles, but their sound was sort of more just like 90s rock at the time. But they're great because they have a song called Killer Tofu, which you can't go wrong with that. (laughs) Right. Yep. That's the first thing that comes to my mind when they hear those. Killer Tofu. And, and they're on Spotify, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All the random shit that could be on Spotify, the beats are on there. Right? That's incredible. That's great. All right. Well, uh, we ready to move on? Yeah, we're getting to our, our big ones here now. Yeah, and this one, it's third on the list. It's number three, but I got to say... Uh, the, the, the top two, you'll see why the top two when we get to them, but this one is probably my hands down favorite again, it's it's tied to the film Almost Famous, which I've talked about on here before it's the film that made me want to become a music journalist the band is Stillwater the songs for Stillwater were all written by uh, director Cameron Crowe and his wife, Nancy Wilson from Heart, and, and they're just, they're great they're just great uh, 70s rock homages Fever Dog was their big song as a kid, I remember I popped the DVD into my computer, into the family computer one day, and was looking at like special features on it and stuff, and reading. And I was reading some stuff that was on that. And like Billy Crudup, who plays Russell, the guitar player, like learned how to play in like a month for that movie. And I remember reading that as like a teenager who'd been playing guitar for a couple years, and like reading that, and I'm like, I quit. <laughs> I quit. I'm done. Yeah. Just, not that what he's doing is so impressive in that film, but he he pulls it off. He makes it look impressive and he makes it sound impressive when he's really just kind of holding chords. But yeah, great, great homage to to 70s rock. That whole film is a great homage to that that era and time in rock and roll history. A a different time, a looser time, a more, um, not necessarily a very PC time considering everything that's going on now. I mean, there's a lot of like, in in the film, it kind of goes on about like, you know, the the band-aids and the groupies and the underage groupies kind of like this open secret in rock and roll. But I mean, that's a, that's something that uh, rock music and popular music has had to wrestle with now in the era of me too. And rightly has to wrestle with because it, it was, it was pretty disgusting, but that was what rock and roll was back then. That was touring. It was just, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll and debauchery. Yeah. And some people do nitpick the movie for being this rose colored look at the time period and yeah like you could be showing lots more of the sex drugs and rock and roll but that's not the story it is cameron crowe's story about his experience being on the road and i'm sure he saw all that but he was also a kid that was idolizing right. these people yeah he, he was a teenager out on the road with like led zeppelin getting to like be on the road and follow these guys around and interview them and yeah and, and yeah, it's it's fictionalized, but it is very much Cameron Crowe's story. And seeing that as, as a kid, still struggling with what am I going to do? And I, I really just wanted to play music and go be a bum somewhere. And I remember seeing that and going like, well, you know, 
this is me too. I love writing and this, this seems like it would work. And yeah, just, I, I, I got caught up in just the, his, his story. I mean, I saw it at about the same age as the character was, and I just got so caught up in it. And it really is. It's, it's from his point of view. So what you said about like, yeah, it's not like a call out on what was awful about rock and roll in the seventies. It's wide eyed 15 year old kid is suddenly thrown into this world and has to make sense of it. It's this great coming of age story as well as a homage to, to the time period and, and to music journalism as well. Yeah, and you have the, the great, that great, great supporting performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman as Lester Bangs, who, who's warning him, like, hey, don't get pulled into it. Don't make friends with them. And he does, because right. he's a kid, and he just falls in love with being on the road and being enveloped with the, by the music. That film was my introduction to Lester Bangs, who is one of my favorite writers of all time. It's also my introduction to Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone magazine. Yep. Terry Chen is the actor. Another great performance. He's got some of the best lines. And I love his whole conversation with, with William Miller, the main character in the hotel room, just kind of woken him up. And he's like, I'm getting some good stuff out here. He's like, yeah, it sounds like it. Now listen, man. <laughs> <It's just> so- <laughs> we already have one, Hunter Thompson. Yeah, and then there's the the whole like spiel that he's given of what he should say. And he's written it on his hand and he just bullshits his way through it. And he's just like, all right, yeah. I like what I'm hearing. Yeah. He's about to get another thousand words. <laughs> kids having a panic attack. We're thinking about giving you the cover. What? <laughs> yeah. Like he goes, to, he goes to the Rolling Stone offices and the first time he sees Ben Fong Torres in, in person, he's like, you're William Miller? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, baby. <laughs> it's just, it's so... Oh, yeah, that reminds me of Rain Wilson's in that scene, too. That's right. That's right. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, he plays a staffer at Rolling Stone. Yeah, and that was the yeah. That's the thing. There's so many like random like Jimmy Fallon is in there as uh, like a new manager for the band, and he's actually pretty good in it. Yeah, and that's another thing I love about the movie. It, it doesn't sell you a bill of goods about what journalism is, especially at that time. Like, I've never been on the road with a band because that's not what music journalism is anymore. Like, it's closed up so much since that time. To be a journalist in that time would have been incredible. But, like, the whole whole scenes in the Rolling Stone offices, nothing rings false to me in those scenes. And I have problems with movies because a lot of times it does just really ring false. And that film, nothing about it really does ring false about music journalism, especially music journalism for that time. Yeah. And... Just a quick honorable mention from another Cameron Crowe movie, Citizen Dick. Yes, Citizen Dick, which was the the band from Singles, which is the big grunge rock film that came out in 92, I want to say. Yeah. Uh, Right at the height of all that stuff. And it's got uh, guest appearances from Soundgarden people and Allison Chains performs a song live in the movie. Uh, Citizen Dick itself is made up of Matt Dillon's character and then Eddie Vedder, Jeff Ament. And uh, I want to say Stone Gossard from Pearl Jam. And uh, the, their song, uh, Touch Me, I'm Dick, is actually a remake of the Mud Honey song, Touch Me, I'm Sick. Mud Honey came from the same band that Pearl Jam came from. Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament and uh, Mark Arm and Steve Turner from Mud Honey performed together in Green River before Green River split up and they went their separate ways uh, to separate careers. Green River has reunited for one-offs uh, since then. 
but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how they kind of mixed and matched the bands and ended up with most of the guys in uh, Pearl Jam playing in a Mud Honey knockoff band, which is yeah. pretty funny. It's one of Cameron Crowe's lesser films, but it's worth checking out if you're a fan and also definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of the, the grunge rock scene of that, of that time period. Yep, I had that soundtrack for years before I ever saw the movie. It's a killer soundtrack. So, okay, so we're up to our, our top two, and they're, they're kind of obvious, but I, I'm going with uh, Blues Brothers just because I was and still am a huge Saturday Night Live fan. And I actually, when I was in high school, my high school would do an annual lip sync competition. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, I did the Blues Brothers with my buddy Derek Egan. And we, using CDs and tapes, we edited it together, a eight-minute medley of the Blues Brothers, and we obsessively watched both movies and sketches, and we learned all the dance moves, and we did, we did the Blues Brothers. Nice. That's awesome. Uh, and it was funny, because at that point, everybody just knew me as that quiet guy that never spoke in the back of the classroom. So me doing that was just like, what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> and I'm pretty sure you showed me that video at one point in college, too. because I, I remember yeah. uh, a skinny, awkward dude in a, in a uh, black suit and sunglasses doing the Blues Brothers moves. So, Yep. Uh, and the Blues Brothers, you know, we kind of talked, we touched upon it with the Monkees. The Blues Brothers started as a fictional band. They debuted... I believe 1976, like April 1976, on Saturday Night Live. They performed Soul Man, and they went and recorded an album. And it might have been 78. They went and recorded an album, and they toured with it. And it became a massive, like, I think, multi-platinum album, um, all before they even made the movie in 1980. Here's what I can add to this. I have, uh, blasphemy, I know, not seen the Blues Brothers, either film. That's oh. just a blind spot that I have. There are, I've seen clips and stuff. I enjoy the music, but yeah, never seen the film. But I have interviewed Curtis Salgado, who is a, uh, a big on like the Portland blues scene here in Oregon. And also one of the direct inspirations to Belushi when he was creating his character in the Blues Brothers. And I pulled up my story, my interview I did with Salgado here. He, he had told me that they had met in 1977. Belushi was filming Animal House and he had, Stopped to see Salgado perform at the Eugene Hotel in Eugene, Oregon. So they met and, and like Salgado kind of had like this mentoring relationship with him, introduced him to a lot of old blues. They performed together on stage. They sang the Floyd Dixon song, Hey Bartender, reading from my story. And then years later, long after the Blues Brothers film in 1980 and Belushi's death in 82, Salgado ran into Dixon at the uh, Chicago Blues Festival. And uh, Dixon had told Salgado, like, Curtis, if it wasn't for you, I, I, I made the biggest royal cheap check I ever made. So I want to thank you for that. And Salgado asked him, like, how much did you make and what did you spend it on? Dixon told him he made $78,000. And the quote is, he looks off into the distance and goes, as if he was looking at an angel. I spent it all on the horses. And, oh, I had a wonderful time. And Salgado <laughs> continued. Like, now that's a blues man. That's the real blues man. He's like, that's what I think of the Blues Brothers. I put money in Floyd Dixon's pocket, and I was a major part of creating and starting the Blues Brothers, which put Blues back on the map, which it absolutely did. Yeah, and that makes absolute sense. Because while everybody remembers Soul Man as being the song they performed on Saturday Night Live, the first song they performed on Saturday Night Live was Hey Bartender. Yeah, yeah. And 
there is a lot of discussion around the Blues Brothers as kind of being a cultural appropriation of black music. And then you have these two white comedians. But there was a real affection from John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, particularly John Belushi. He was like really immersed in it. And then he got Dan Aykroyd into it. And as far as the cultural appropriation, that is true. But at the same time, they did bring back blues music and in a big way. And the movie had cameos by all these massive blues artists and R&B artists like Aretha Franklin and Ray Charles and, and James Brown. And so all of their careers got elevated by their appearance in that film. And it, again, it goes back that heart thing it, that, that it, it was a, a clear tribute to these blues artists that they loved and, and i also want to mention curtis salgado very white so <laughs> so let's let's do uh, the big one which is probably obvious to everybody at this point yep these last two are pretty obvious but no self-respecting list of fictional bands is not going to have these two at the top number one is spinal tap of course spinal tap they didn't start the, uh, as, as we've seen throughout this conversation, they did not start the fictional band thing, but they're the, the band that everyone is going to think of when they think of a fictional band. Yeah, what, what, what can I say about Spinal Tap? It's just, it's for anyone who's a musician, metal, but I mean, any genre of musician can recognize themselves in this movie, in, in the band, in the over-the-top performances and over-the-top situations. There, there's so many instances where musicians watch this and just kind of go, oh God, oh God. Because it, it is like this mirror that's being held up. And it, it, it is over the top, but there's the reason that film works is that every scene has a kernel of truth in it. And beyond that, like as we, we talked about with A Mighty Wind, all these guys are musicians too. Christopher Guest, Michael McKeon, and Harry Shearer, who are the main three guys in Spinal Tap, wrote all this music, this incredibly funny music and incredibly competent, great music. You got stuff like Tonight I'm Gonna Rock You Tonight. That is catchy as hell. Stonehenge. Brilliant, yep. brilliant song and a brilliant scene in the film. The pivotal scene in the film is the Stonehenge moment when they lower the, the Stonehenge that, that is in danger of being crushed by a dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah it, it's so over the top but there's so much truth in it and that's why it works as a film and as a band spinal tap went on to tour the world released two more albums Derek smalls which is the character that harry shearer plays most recently released a solo album oh my god that's amazing yes <laughs> yeah he, he did a, a a full solo album and he did i think he did the lukewarm water tour Spinal Tap fans know what that is. <laughs> so one, a prime example, not only of a fictional band, but a fictional band that became a real band that, that tours and everything. One of my favorite videos, I think it's from 2007, and they were doing, I forget what they were doing, but they, <laughs> they played Big Bottom, which is a song where they all put bassists on because it's Big Bottom. And yep. <laughs> Michael McKeon goes, I would like to introduce to you every known bass player in the world. And they just bring on like <laughs> people just like all like famous people They're, like all the guys from metallica are there and just like like everyone's got a bass on and so there's like a hundred bass players playing big bottom it's incredible that is hilarious yeah <laughs> yeah they're great it's just such a funny perfect movie and it set the template for the christopher guest mockumentaries and not, not enough can be said for sort of the, the precedent being set by that movie. And uh, let's see. 
this is already insanely long, but some other honorable Ooh. mentions. The Soggy Bottom Boys from Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Because sort of paralleling the story in that movie, they became an unexpected hit. This weird, like, 1930s Depression-era music wound up becoming a multi-platinum-selling album in 2000. Yeah. Which, which makes no sense, but it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to mention there that the actors are not performing or singing for the Sogging Bottom Boys. The Sogging Bottom Boys were, were a different band and they just lip sang to that performance in the film. But uh, my God, that scene where they pull that out in the radio station is one of my favorite scenes ever, just of all time. I love that movie and I love that scene and I love that song. Yep. So, Man of Constant Sorrow is the song. Yes. Some other honorable mentions. Uh, oh, I got to go with this. Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Another movie I haven't seen for years, but it is just so out there. And the cast, you've got uh, Jeff Goldblum and John Lithgow are the, the ones that are coming to my mind. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a weird, weird movie. And yeah. the band is weird, 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 but awesome. Yeah, it's been a long time since I saw that movie. I watched it in college, and it is such a strange, strange movie. One of the kind of movie that can only exist in the 80s. And let's see, another honorable mention, kind of a more newer film, Sing Street. It was an Irish film. It was the same writer-director as the movie Once. And it's, like so many stories, it is a boy starts a band to impress a girl. And... They, it's set in the 80s in, in Ireland, and he has a big brother who introduces him to all the, the best new wave bands. And so, like, every time he's introduced to a new band, he writes a song in the style of that band. And the songs are legitimately really good. The best one is Drive It Like You Stole It, which is kind of in the vein of Hall and & Oates. And you listen to it, and you you, you'd swear it was a song that was written from that era, and it's just so spot on and so perfect. <laughs> yep. Nice. I think I'll, I'll, I'll throw out one more. And then from Arrested Development, Dr. Fienke's 100% Natural Good Time Family Band Solution. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, a running thread that they go back to, but uh, introduced in an episode uh, talking about uh, the Tobias Fienke, uh, the character played by David Cross and his wife, uh, Portia de Rossi, his character, Lindsay Bluth. And their daughter, uh, Maybe, uh, played by Ali Shawkat. And they had this band where they were hired by pharmaceutical companies to sing about the drugs that they had. And at the very end, Maybe would always read the list of warnings. But, like, all the drugs that they used to push have been, like, pulled from the market for, like, really, really awful side effects and stuff. But in this one episode, Tobias decides he wants to get the band back together. So they're singing about all these old drugs and stuff. And, like, uh, George Michael, uh, Michael Sarah's character really wants to join the band on Woodblock. It, it's hilarious. It's awesome. Not a good band, but a very funny one. Yep. And then I guess one more for me is Robin Sparkles from How I Met Your Mother, which she's the Robin Shabatsky's alter ego when she was a Canadian pop star in the 90s. But because it's Canada, she sounds like she's a pop star from the 80s because they're always a decade behind because, of course, they are. And her big song is Let's Go to the Mall. <laughs> uh, and she winds up being an analog for Alanis Morissette because a lot of people don't know this, but Alanis Morissette, before she broke, was 
a 90s pop star in Canada. And so the, the arc for this character, Robin Sparkles, is that she has her angry grunge phase and it just doesn't pan out for her the same way it did for Alanis Morissette. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's good. We could probably do another hour, but let's stop. Yeah, we uh, we covered this pretty good. I wasn't sure how this was going to go, but like we, uh, I think we hit most of the bases. I mean, obviously, not every fictional band is included here, but uh, this is a this is a nice jumping off point to uh, to discover more fictional music to enjoy. Yeah, so we're still broke and we're still nerds and we're still stinky whistleteats, and come back and learn about more stuff next time. <laughs> happy, 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 joy, joy, joy. <laughs>